Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. I'm your host, my name is Jeremy Walker, and this week we're looking at a sermon entitled The Believer Sinking in the Mire, from Psalm 69 and verse 14. The text is, Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. As you may know, we work our way through Spurgeon's sermons. Each week we read a sermon each day. And each week we select a featured sermon so that we can zero in on something and that may be a bit more manageable for those who are only looking for something to read once a week or over the course of a week. So this week it's sermon 626 to 632 and the featured sermon is 631. This on the believer sinking in the mire. And Spurgeon opens with quite a striking, uh, striking illustration of a a man who jumps out of a boat near the uh, edge of a river and immediately sinks in the mud as if in quicksand and the the horror of sinking in the deep mire where there is no standing. And it's that imagery referred to a spiritual state or condition which Spurgeon is now using for the sermon as a whole. So deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink is a text leading to three reflections for Spurgeon. First, that the true believer may be in the mire and very near sinking. Secondly, that the true believer may be in such a condition that God alone can deliver him. And thirdly, that in whatever condition the believer may be, prayer is evermore his safe refuge. If a man finds that his own strength fails, says Spurgeon, he can look up to him who is an ever-present help in time of trouble and cry unto him, Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Now in those three headings, Spurgeon is really uh, moving in tighter and tighter toward his conclusion. So uh, if you want to think of it as a, a sort of a pyramid structure, the first point is the broad base, the second point is the next and narrower level, and then the third point brings the pinnacle and the penetration of the application. So we begin with the statement that the true believer may be in the mire. And Spurgeon wants to answer a number of questions here. He wants to ask what kind of mire the believer may be brought into. He wants to know why God allows him to be brought there and how we can prove that he is really and truly a believer in the truth, although God suffers him or allows him to be brought into that state or condition. And so Spurgeon begins with asking what kind of mire, what kind of uh, sucking down sufferings and distresses a believer may experience in the world. And he has a number of answers to that question. The first is the deep mire of unbelief. Some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others, he says, and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible, have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. So, a man may be a true believer and yet feel that he is sinking fast into the mire and clay of unbelief, as some of us know to our own lamentation and dismay. So, Even preachers and pastors, even some of the most experienced and eminent saints that you may know, are attacked by unbelief and it it sucks us down and it uh, grips our souls. 
Then, a believer may be quite settled in his belief of the gospel, may never doubt the inspiration of scripture, the atonement of Christ, and other precious truths, and yet still may not have a full assurance of his own interest. A true believer in Christ, says Spurgeon, may often suspect himself to be a hypocrite when he is most sincere, to be an apostate when he is most diligently following the Lord, and he may set himself down as the chief of sinners when the testimony of men and of God is that he is a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and avoids evil, turns his back upon evil. So you can be in a state of high spiritual health and yet be struggling with even a sense that you are a true child of God. And true believers do sometimes droop into this state for various reasons. Then again, there's the the trial of temporal trouble. Now again, Spurgeon reminds us that this is never going to absolutely swallow us up, but it may be a very severe trial to us. When the soul is alarmed about spiritual things and bodily or pecuniary troubles come, that's financial difficulties, then the sea is boisterous indeed. There are times in this world when because of pain and sickness, uh, uh, perhaps loss or grief, uh, the, the collapse of our financial or economic or business hopes, the loss of a job, the fact that we can't even put food on the table, wherever you are up and down in that scale. Spurgeon says that the believer can feel like they're being swallowed up by these distresses. But he says there's something still worse. There's the mire of inward corruption. Times when believers have such a sight of the little hell within their own hearts that they are ready to despair of the possibility of their being completely sanctified and made meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You are to be immortal, but you are to be reminded that you are mortal. You are one day to be raised in glory, he says, but you are to remember, as long as you are here, that the time of glory is not come, for you drag about to your shame, your weakness, your dishonour and your misery, a body of sin and death. The best of God's children know this, and I think the holier they are, the more likely they are to feel the conflict within. So there's this sense of sin in the soul. There's this gripping distress over our own corruptions in the heart that makes us feel like we're sinking into deep mire. And then there's the reality of satanic temptations. There's no knowing what suggestions Satan may thrust into the ear and soul of the greatest believer that heaven ever made. Satan will suggest not merely little sins, but the worst and foulest of sins to the best of God's chosen people. Even he venture in his baseness to urge the man of God to destroy himself when under depression of spirits. Sometimes it's it's in the very act of preaching or, or witnessing or uh, at the moments when you most long to be holy. You could be sitting in church and trying to pay close attention to a particular sermon and it seems like those are the moments when Satan will throw himself against you and you are not able to resist and you feel as if you are sinking in the mire. Now, says Spurgeon, why is this? Why does God permit these things? Why does God allow these things? Why even does God impose these things? Are these men who are thus tossed about by doubts and vexed with the great depravity of their hearts truly at that time God's people? That's the question. If they were not God's people, the pain of the temptation which they endure could not have reached them. Spurgeon's point is that the kind of distress that men 
of God feel under these circumstances is precisely that which marks them out to be a child of God. Spiritual life is the first requisite, the first requirement for spiritual grief and spiritual contrition. Depend upon it, beloved, that those who suffer as I have described are the children of God, for they show it. They show it by the way that they bear their trials, for in the worst of times there is always a clear distinction which marks them as separate from other men. If they cannot yet shout victory, they will bear it patiently. So there's a a revelation of the identity of a child of God, even in the way that they respond to these circumstances. He goes on to say that it's well known to the students of Christian biography that the most eminent of God's saints have had to pass through trials similar to those which we have been describing. Luther was a man of the strongest faith, and yet at times of the faintest hope. He was, and he was not, a firm believer. His faith never wavered as to the truth of the cause which he advocated, but his faith as to his own interest in Christ seldom, if ever, amounted to full assurance. You may be listening to this and saying, I don't get that, I don't understand that, I don't really know what this uh, what this is about, and yet here's a man who is persuaded of the truth of the gospel, a man who is absolutely sure that God is God, that the gospel is true, and yet who sometimes doubts his own interests, sometimes is not sure that he himself is a true child of God. Spurgeon actually suggests that all of uh, Luther's faith was spent in in, in fighting the greater fight uh, rather than in wrestling in his own soul. And then he talks about John Knox, and John Knox was tempted by self-righteousness as he came to die. And and Spurgeon says, some of you can heartily sympathize in the truth before us, but if there's no one else who can, I can. He says, I I know what it's like to be absolutely persuaded of the truth of the gospel and yet to not be persuaded that I myself have an interest in that gospel. And I think that's helpful for us to remember as we listen to or, or read through or study over these sermons of Spurgeon that he's not some kind of super saint who never has any particular doubts or fears. But like a Luther and like a Knox, he is someone who has to pray often, deliver me out of the mire. And so Spurgeon concludes his first point, that, that big foundational one, that the true believer may be in the mire and very near sinking. He's broken that down into the kinds of mire, the kinds of muck the believer may be brought into. And then he's been asking the question, why God allows this and and how you can see that the child of God who so suffers really is a child of God. And now he comes to the second point, that the true believer may be in such a condition that God alone may deliver him. And here you've got that second layer of the sermon and it's briefer, it's narrower. Believers are in such a state, they know experimentally in those circumstances that no one can deliver them but their God. And he makes a number of particular points here to help us understand exactly what it is he has in mind. So the first is that the word of God by itself if not laid home by the divine spirit, cannot help them. He means that you can turn over the pages of your Bible and it's dry as a stick to you. 
You don't feel like you can get a hold of any of its promises. Maybe you even feel that the that the threatenings and the judgments are all for you. He says the preaching of the gospel itself can be without power. You don't profit from the ministry as you once did. It used to make you leap for joy when you heard the precious things of God. But now there's there's no impact upon you. Spurgeon's point is that the, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, must be exercising his comforting office. He must be operating upon you. It is by his bringing the word of God read or preached to bear that the, uh, the, the comforts come. And then he says that other believers cannot aid you under such circumstances. You can turn to your, your friends and sure there's sympathy and they may tell you of the faithfulness of God. They, they point to the promises with regard to the future and you're left sighing. Oh, that I had wings like a dove that I might fly away and be at rest. Now, these are all blessed things, he says. But you can even end up with religion itself, true religion, seeming empty to you. The one that you need is God himself, says Spurgeon. Now, I think we need to be careful here. And I think Spurgeon is trying to be careful that he's not dismissing the instruments, that he's not denying the means of grace, that he's not overlooking the fact that God has provided things by means of which we can obtain these gospel comforts. But he's saying those things absent God himself. In the, If God is not at work in them and through them, then they will not bring their comforts. And so the best position for a Christian is living wholly and directly on God's grace. The best position is still to be where he was at first, having nothing and yet possessing all things. This is the kind of point that he's trying to make. You need to get back to the rock, which is Christ. Never get for a moment to think that our standing is in our sanctification, our mortification, our graces or our feelings, but know that because Christ on Calvary offered a full, free, efficacious atonement for everyone that believes on him, therefore we are saved, for we are complete in him, having nothing of our own to trust to, but tr resting upon the merits of him whose passion and whose life furnish for us the only sure ground of confidence." So Spurgeon is saying, as long as these other things bring Christ to us, or as long as these other things bring us to Christ, then they may be helpful. But it is Christ himself in his person and work that must be the rock upon which we stand, that we sink not in the mire. I bless God then for the mire and for my sinking in it when it makes me cry out, deliver me, O my God, out of the deep mire and let me not sink. And so Spurgeon comes to his uh, last and uh, briefest point. And this is the one where he's loading up the application. This is where the thrust comes in. This is what he wants us to do in the light of any distresses that we might have. Prayer, says Spurgeon, is the never failing resort of the Christian in any case and in every plight. When you cannot use your sword, you may take to the weapon of all prayer. Now, this is Ephesians 6 language, but Spurgeon is filtering it through the uh, uh, the description that John Bunyan uses 
in the pilgrim's progress of this particular weapon that Christian has when he's assaulted by Apollyon, I think it is. It's the weapon of all prayer. Your powder may be damp, he says. Your bowstring may be relaxed, your sword rusty, your spear bent, but the weapon of all prayer is never out of order. There's this blessed thing about prayer, he says. It's a door which none can shut. Whatever else you cannot do, you are able to pray. You can um, obtain those heavenly blessings. Prayer is never out of order. Prayer is never forbidden. It is never wrong for you to pray, for the gates of heaven are open night and day. Your prayer is heard in heaven in the dead of the night, in the midst of your business, in the heat of noonday, or in the shades of evening. Those are precious thoughts that in the midst of all those kinds of sorrows, those temporal distresses, those spiritual assaults, those doubts and those fears, whatever it may be, I yet can pray. And prayer is never futile. True prayer is evermore true power. You may not always get what you ask for, and that's important, but you shall always have your real wants supplied. We don't always know what we should ask for, but we can at least call upon God to help us. So when God does not answer his children according to the letter, says Spurgeon, he does so according to the Spirit. If you ask for silver, will you be angered because God gives you gold? If you seek bodily health, would you complain if instead of that he makes your sickness turn to the healing of spiritual maladies? Isn't it better, he asks, to have the cross sanctified than to have the cross removed? In other words, you may say to the Lord God, please take this trouble away. Please lift me out of the mire and the Lord God might be pleased to strengthen you in that distress and to use those troubles of body or soul to draw you closer to him and to lift you up to Jesus Christ. And we've we've seen here that Spurgeon doesn't say that casually or lightly. He's not standing on some high eminence and saying, oh, if, if, if you get into trouble, maybe the Lord God can drag you up here where I live. No, he's saying, I know what it is to sink in the mire and I know what it is to call upon the Lord my God out of my trouble. Better then to have all sufficient grace than to have the thorn taken away. So Spurgeon's great thrust here at the end of this sermon is pray. Whatever you do, pray. The devil may tempt you to say, I cannot pray, but you can pray, you do pray, you must pray. Spurgeon begins now to throw himself into this. If you have spiritual life, although you can scarcely bend your knee and are almost afraid to utter words once dear to you, thinking here of the person perhaps who once knew more of that blessedness of spirit and has now slipped away from it, Then he says, your soul still desires and pants and hungers and thirsts. And that is the essential of prayer, the very marrow and essence of prayer. Sobs and looks are prayers. You might say, well, I can't pray. I can't express myself properly. I can't bring out these great rolling sentences. I'm not going to sound very impressive. I've got nothing. Sobs and looks, says Spurgeon. Your tears and your groans, your your upward glances of longing to where the God of heaven dwells, those are in themselves pray. And though you say you cannot, you must pray. You cannot help praying if you are a Christian. And so even if you are you are merely groaning, 
if it's the desires of your heart that are coming out through weeping eyes and broken words, then nevertheless pray. Never mind what form your prayer takes, says Spurgeon, but do pray. My dear brother, everything depends now upon your prayer. If Satan can stop your prayer, he's stripped you of your last resort and your last hope. So pray if it costs you your life. Pray. Do not go to your ease. Do not take any rest until you have prayed. Give no sleep to your eyes until you have prayed. Do not slumber until you've had dealings with God in prayer. Not pray? Are you willing to be damned? Not pray? Are you willing to make your bed in hell? Not pray? Shall devils be your companions? Shall heaven's gate be shut against you? Not pray? Why, my brother, you must pray now. Oh, send up the prayer from the very bottom of your heart. Oh, God, deliver me out of the deep mire and let me not sink. Save me, oh, my God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, there's a there's a holy eloquence here. Remember, Spurgeon's not reading carefully crafted sentences, but such is his sense of uh, what he's trying to, to communicate and such is his comfort with the language that even the way he structures some of these arguments, uh, the way he uh, builds a rhythm and then breaks it for emphasis, carries this truth deep into our souls. And so he concludes with prayer. May God the Holy Spirit sweetly compel you to pray. May he incline, guide, direct and instruct you how to pray that this very night you may offer up a prayer which God in his great goodness will hear and answer. And you know he's been uh, primarily applying this to the believer because that's the context that he finds in Psalm 69. Uh, And yet here he's now pleading with others. He says, "You you can pray too if you've never prayed before pray now. But if you're a Christian, let your heart cheer you. Remember that God is ready to help you. Don't become too confident in your own strength or goodness. God will bring you down and make you cry out as sharply and as sorrowfully as David. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. And I wonder if perhaps even this particular sermon then may have been born of some experience in uh, Spurgeon's recent past at this point. Uh, Maybe he'd uh, found himself being lifted up in spirit and the Lord in his mercy had brought him low and made him to cry out, deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Maybe there was uh, some uh, other pastoral situation into which he'd gone and, uh, and this was the prayer that he was urging upon distressed believers. But it's it's such a such an important point and one that we really need to heed because so often prayer is a last resort and not our first now you might say well spurgeon himself says it's your last resort no spurgeon's saying whatever else you do cry out to god god himself must help you and god can be approached by the praying man or woman who in dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ goes to him and asks him for the mercy of being drawn out of the mire and prevented from sinking. So you may be listening to this and perhaps, and I hope, that if you have felt that or if you come to feel that, that you're sinking in the mire, if perhaps even now you are in the depths of those distresses, perhaps there's physical pain there's there's grief and distress in your circumstances, there's pain in the church, 
there's temptations from the evil one, there's the doubts and fears of your own unbelief, there's the uh, grief over your own lack of assurance and an uncertainty as to uh, where you stand and to whom you belong, Spurgeon says, pray, pray to God himself and go to the God who provides and uses the means of grace and ask him to lift you up out of the mire that you may not sink. I hope that's been a blessing to you. Next week, God willing, we'll be reading sermons 633 to 639. And the featured sermon is simply entitled Zealots. It's sermon 639. It's simply entitled Zealots. And thank you then for listening today. And I hope that you will uh, visit perhaps the mediagratii.org website from the heart of Spurgeon is a a podcast that they're uh, pleased to make available there are more resources like this including a biographical film on Spurgeon's life and labours that you can find if you go there as well as signing up to a newsletter where you'll get your weekly uh, dose of Spurgeon if you're interested so thank you again for listening and may God bless you and lift you out of the mire if you've begun to sink